G'day guys, today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped. They've just launched in Australia and offer precision engineered tools for your family jewels. You should definitely check out the range. I'm using the Lawnmower 3.0 and you might laugh, but there's nothing wrong with keeping yourself tidy down there. So check out the range at manscaped.com and you'll get 20% off and free shipping with a simple code TK. So check it out, manscaped.com and use the code TK for 20% off. And just remember, Father's Day is just around the corner. Also out now is my book, Talking With Champions. So if you want to support the podcast and also pick up the best stories from athletes from Australia and also some royalty from some of the American sports, pick up a copy now. You can simply go online at Booktopia, Angus Robinson or Dimix. It's called Talking With Champions and you can pick it up now. So welcome to episode 191 of Talking With TK. Special guest is, you know, I recorded this a couple of weeks ago, but it is one of the leading performance coaches in rugby league in Alex Corvo. Now, really wanted to have Alex on for quite a while. You know, a lot of my guests behind the scenes have told me a lot about Alex and he's he's really considered one of the best in the business. I really also enjoyed my episode as a lot of people did with Donnie Singe. That episode went absolutely gangbusters. So there is a reason behind this. You know, I really wanted to, I really like the stories of, you know, these, these leading performance coaches slash strength and conditioning guys and they've got some great insights and they've got some backstories as well. So if you're, if you're open to hearing more, I'm always up for suggestions. So some of the the other awesome strength and conditioning slash performance guys around the traps, yeah, definitely suggest them out. Send me an email or direct message me on the Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And I'll definitely do my best to try and get more of these legends onto the show. All right, guys, excited for today's episode. And I introduce Alex Corvo. All right, guys, my special guest today is Alex Corbo. Alex is an expert in physical performance, having over 20 years' experience across professional rugby league. His notable roles include the head of physical performance at the Melbourne Storm for 11 years, which includes three premierships, head of performance at the Brisbane Broncos for four years, and head of performance at the New Zealand Warriors for two years. On the rep scene, he has been in the performance staff with the Queensland State of Origin team for four years, and also head of strength and conditioning for the Australian Kangaroos for six years. Welcome to the podcast, Alex Corbett. Hey, TK. Hello, Alex. Hello, good to good to catch up, mate. Mate, first things first. First year in twenty years that you haven't been involved in professional rugby league. How's it been being away from the game? Yeah, no, that's a really good question, TK. Um, you know, it was second nature to me working in the NRL, and to be fair, I have found it a bit difficult. I do enjoy the environment and yeah. the culture and all that, but. At the same time, I've enjoyed sitting back and it's probably been a good year to be able to do that, unfortunately, with everything that's been going on, um, you know, particularly my previous club, the Warriors, unfortunately, uh, you know, being in isolation and not mm. being able to travel back to New Zealand and so on. So uh, I'm still a keen fan. I watch uh, a lot of the games, probably too many. Yeah. And uh, as I said, it's been allowing me to sort of sit back, watch and kick back and enjoy other things in life. Yeah. Has it given you like a bit of a chance to, you know, you said kick back, but are you one of those blokes that kind of have a notepad and, you know, with the rules changing so much and, you know, you know for yourself firsthand, the game kind of speeds up every two or three years. There's always an evolution of the game. And we've just seen this next evolution of the game, which we've never seen before. The speed is kind of like a touch football game at times. You know, there's new rules from the referees. Have you had a, a good chance to on ref, just reflecting on everything that's happened 
what you would do uh, differently if you were to step back in? Yeah, to be fair, I've sort of run a lot of things through my mind, but not officially. I haven't documented any of it or whatever. I suppose I'm waiting. If there was another opportunity, I'd certainly get right onto it. But, yeah. of course, uh, I am involved with State of Origin later this year and we're having a meeting with staff next week and I've had regular conversations with Kevy um, since the start of the season, um, but all informal sort of stuff. But obviously, uh, we're going to nut all that out pretty shortly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's been very interesting and, you know, on the topic, I just, I'm amazed at the job that Peter Blanders has done. I've not met the man, but yep. to be fair, I think we owe him a great deal because I don't think the game would be even probably going ahead if it wasn't for him. And, uh, you know, he deserves so much credit. I really, yeah, yeah. I've got time for what he's done, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it's the livelihood of everyone involved in rugby league. And that's not only people that, you know, prepare clubs behind the scenes, the players, the referees, but... Let's be honest, it's fright. we're doing this podcast on a Friday. I'm looking forward to watching. It's still isolation compared to you guys in Queensland, us in Sydney. I'm looking forward to sitting back and watching the two games of footy. If I didn't have that, it'd be a pretty boring Friday night. Yeah. Yeah, well, that period where uh, where the game wasn't being played, I know my wife said to me, she said, oh, geez, I'm glad the, um, the season started because you weren't the same. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I thought I was, but <laughs> she didn't think I was, so... Uh... I think we're all feeling the same, TK. Yeah, for sure. Mate, just sticking on kind of just those news rules before we go back to your story, you know, with strength and conditioning, a lot of kind of short, shorter, sharper stuff has come in, a lot of sprinting, all that sort of thing. But the rugby league, the guy right now playing the game, I guess, you know, that, you know, the cardio side of things is obviously an increasing role, especially with the new rules. Would you kind of, if you were a trainer right now, would you be introducing more long-distance running? Uh, I don't know if I'd be introducing more. I think there's still a, a place and element for it in your training program. Mm. Um, you know, you just got to evolve with the game. And I don't know that it's become more aerobic, it's certainly become a lot faster. So, um, you know, there's a term that they give is called high-speed running. Yeah. And there's probably a opportunity to be doing more of that. But again, it's a bit of a balance because, you know, doing too much of that in your training can have other other effects in uh, in terms of injuries and fatigue and so on. So, yeah, it's certainly, as I've always said, rugby league is one of the toughest sports to condition for because there are so many different requirements in our game. Yeah. On top of the sport being one of the toughest in the world, if not the toughest. Yeah. Um, so it's a huge challenge and... Uh, you know, there are many different ways of setting training programs. I'd like to think that the way I do mine is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I imagine other performance managers have got other methods, which uh, obviously work pretty well as well. Yeah. Do you think the big boppers, you know, the likes of, you know, the Matty Lodges, the Andrew Fafitas, you know, these guys that are kind of weighing in that 120s, do you think they'll have to lose a, a little bit of kilos to, to keep up with the game as it is? Yeah, it appears so. I mean, just watching the games, um, you know, your middle forwards and the smaller ones seem to be more effective. I mean, I was watching the game last night with Regan Campbell-Gillard and he's obviously extremely Mm. mobile, middle man. Um, You know, your Victor Radleys, those sorts of guys, um, you know, who obviously can fend for themselves physically, uh, are very effective. Um, If you're a bigger guy, you've obviously got to be able to move well. You know, Payne Hass is a perfect example of that. He's a freak, but I don't know there's too many of those really big guys that have the ability to move around the field as efficiently as well as someone like a Payne Hass. He's one in a one in a hundred, maybe one in a million type front rower. Yeah. Um, some of your other bigger front rowers have been found out at different times from what I'm seeing. 
So, uh, yeah, I think you'll find that. And the game's evolved many over many years in different ways. You know, 10 or 20 years ago, it was bigger, it was better. Then it became faster and so we become a bit lighter. And it's interesting to see the um, performance managers changing their tack year to year almost. But I've always had a bit of a philosophy that, you know, every player has an ideal playing weight that yeah. they can carry. And um, it's a matter of trying to find out what that is. And, you know, their ideal playing weight may fluctuate by a couple of kilos either way. Yep. But it's not going to change by five or ten kilos generally. Mate, just on weight, you know, you played in the you know early 90s. You played for the Canberra Raiders. When you were a prop playing in the 90s, how much did you weigh? <laughs> Jeez, you're going right back there, TK. Um, <laughs> I, my, at my heaviest, I was 104 kilos, so... You know, I had to work really hard. Yeah. You'll get kicked out of the front rowers club these days, 104. Yeah, I wasn't overly big. Um, but, you know, uh, I suppose that was what I had to do. Um, and that's part of the reason why I love the gym so much and love my training. Yeah. Is that I had to work hard in the gym uh, to, to maintain that weight. When I retired, I intentionally lost, um, you know, about nearly 10 kilos. So I'm still under 100, well under 100 kilos now. So, um, you know, that 104 kilos is the weight that I forced myself to carry at the time. Yeah. You know, Alex, when, you, when you've got a full-time job looking after the boys, like when do you get time to train yourself? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Generally, generally it's first thing in the morning. So okay, Before you know, everyone comes in. Yeah, whatever time, whatever time training's due to start, you know, you obviously make uh, an effort to get in there well and truly before that. What normally happens is the boys are strolling in and, I'm generally finishing in the gym doing some bicep curls or something and got a bit of a surf as they walk past. <laughs> I only ask because Trent Barrett, I heard him yesterday. He he lives obviously at the south coast and he has to drive all the way to Penrith. So he leaves at five and he doesn't leave Penrith till five. So he's probably not yeah, getting right. home. He's getting home for dinner. But he looks like a bloody male model. I'm going, you're still training sometime. Like where are you fitting this training session in? Yeah, Trent's probably one of these uh, very lucky guys that probably doesn't have to do too much uh, to look after his body and his looks. So um, we're unfortunately not all like that. But, um, yeah, the issue is if you don't get the session done in the morning, you obviously have good intentions doing it in the afternoon. But there's a lot of things that generally crop up during your day as a performance manager. Um, You know, I often then train, you know, I've trained at 5, 6 o'clock in the evening as well. You know, um, me psychologically and for wellbeing reasons, I I just feel like I need to train. I'm I'm a bit OCD with that sort of stuff. But... um, if I don't train, I'll normally go home sort of kicking cans and going, shit, I've missed the, ch- missed the session. I've got to make that up tomorrow. <laughs> now, Alex, rip it back to the start. Talk, talk me a little bit about your family background. Now, Corvo, that's Italian, correct? Yes. Yes, I'm proud Italian parents. Uh, mum came over to Australia at nine years of age in okay. the 50s with her mum and dad. And my father came out when he was 18 on his own. Um, he had a brother and a sister in Canberra, yep. well, I think living in Queanbeyan at the time. So he came out to uh, to join them, but obviously left his mum and dad in Italy. Um, unfortunately, they both passed away before he was able to see them again. Um, mm-hmm. He was the youngest of about 11 kids. So, you know, dad left school at 12 years of age looking for an opportunity, um, worked as a blacksmith in, in Italy wow. and uh, came out to Australia. So that's the background of the family, obviously, um, what mum and dad went through and, the effort they put in to, to raise us four boys was huge. So Yeah. Did they settle in Canberra straight away? Yes. Um, 
pretty sure the dad lived with his sister for a number of years before he, well, yeah, he met mum, I think two to three years after he came to Australia. They met okay. in about 2021, married soon after. Yep. Um, when they were married, they lived with my mum's parents. Yep. In a, in a suburb called Yarralumla, which now is a very exclusive part of Canberra. But back then it was, uh, you know, where all the new residents moved to. It was like almost um, government houses and so on. Um, and then uh, dad, mum and dad bought a block of land and built a house in a suburb called Butchangra, which is in the Belconnen area yep. um, and around where Bruce Stadium is, not far away from there. And mum's still living in that house now, so... Wow. As Italians tend to do, they uh, they don't like moving too much. They build their house and it's there forever, and it doesn't fall over. Um, Dad had a huge part in building the house, as as did my grandfather, and uh, obviously renovations and that went on in recent years and so on. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, Dad's passed away uh, about four or five years ago, um, but we have many fond memories of of our time. Yeah, mate. Tell me about the feeds. Is your mum a good mate? For my Italian friends, when they invite me over, mate, Ripper, Noki, like that one goes through the roof. Is that the same in your household? Yeah, we grew up with that, um, you know, regularly. And, you know, being one of four boys, um, there was no shortage of food, but the food went pretty quick. So you had to sort of uh, get it on your plate and down your, down your throat as quick as you could. And if there's any leftovers, they sort of sat in the kitchen for a limited amount of time. Um, generally, by the next morning, the leftovers are gone as well. But, um, you know, I have fond memories of, of our family dinners, meals, but also um, meals with um, extended family, uncles, yep. aunts, cousins. Um, my auntie had a pizza oven. Um, you know, we'd regularly have, you know, huge family meals over there with unlimited food and then you've got you talking about the cured meats and salamis yeah. and sugar, uh, <laughs> all that sort of stuff so I was, I was certainly growing up with all that um as I got a little older obviously the past has sort of taken a bit of a back seat <laughs> with the carbs and whatever but I still do enjoy good homemade pasta at times that's pretty hard to knock that one back oh for sure now Alex you know you mentioned four four brothers in the family you know I actually remember your brother, Mark, played quite regularly because when I started watching footy, it was about 1990, so I was about seven years old. But obviously, right. your brother, because I, I watched a lot of footy around, especially around that Super League when he was at the Rams. Like He was at the okay. bloody, he was at the Adelaide Rams, for God's sake. But, yeah, I remember watching your brother quite heavily, and obviously he's a big bopper. He's a front rower like yourself. So was your other two mm. brothers also big fellas? Yeah. yeah. I'm the smallest of all four of us, so... Um the other two, in addition to Mark, are probably built similarly. Um, wow. you know, big bone, big body sort of guys. And um, Was your old man like that as well? Uh, Dad was sort of more my sort of height and physique. So he wasn't, for an Italian, he was big. Like, you know, yeah, you're yeah. six foot tall in an Italian world, you're a giant. But <laughs> um, Dad was about six two and, you know, an athletic, you know, very, very strong, hardworking, you know, physical sort of guy. Um so I suppose we we've had some good genetics in that regard because Mum's only about five foot one, five foot two. But um, uh, my youngest brother, in fact, is the tallest. He's about six three to six four. Yeah. Are you, are you the eldest, uh, Alex? Yeah, I'm the eldest. Um, I've got a brother, Dave, who uh, is thirteen months younger. Then Mark's number three. Yeah. And he's uh, around six years younger than myself. And then Philip. Uh, He's uh, the last, the uh, youngest, and he's, I can't remember now, but he's at least 10 years old, uh, younger than me. So, 
Yeah. How are the backyard battles? Did you bash them? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask them, but uh, I didn't think I was too cruel. But um, I remember the backyard cricket games got pretty interesting and um, we used to play with real cricket balls at times. Oh, no. And uh, the beamers, the old flying full toss at heads, used to happen quite regularly when we got annoyed with one another and got pretty scary, I suppose, when you think it was at the time. But, um, <laughs> yeah, backyard cricket and, you know, footy on the front lawn, including the neighbours and, yeah, it was, it was a great upbringing, I suppose. We, uh, we had a lot of good fun. Yeah, Alex, what was your junior club down there in terms of footy? Um, I played at the Belconi United Panthers, but funnily enough, I didn't play um, weekend rugby league till I was under 19. Under so 19? I, yeah, I grew up playing AFL, but also... Um, oh, you imposter. <laughs> yeah, I started... Mark didn't, himself didn't play club footy till he was about 19, so... Dad was a Jehovah's Witness okay. and um, they didn't allow you to play weekend competitive sport. Wow. Somehow we were able to play um, school sport, but it, uh, it was pretty tough in that we wanted to play and we weren't able to. Mm. Um, when we got to 18, 19, we said, Dad, sorry, but, you know, mm. we are, we want to play. We obviously knew we had a little bit of talent. Um, but having said that, I played uh, AFL up until I was about 17. Okay. What, what were you? Were you a kicker, defender? <laughs> I wasn't much, I don't think, but, I mean, I, I was able to play some rep footy in Canberra, the ACT, which wasn't a huge achievement, to be honest, but I played, you know, national carnivals and so on Yeah. against a lot of guys that ended up playing AFL. In fact, two two or three guys from my club in Canberra played AFL. Actually, one of them became a coach in Don Pike, okay. who was a previous Adelaide Crows coach. Um Another guy called Brett Allison who played in the grand final team with North Melbourne. Uh, and there was a guy called Sean Smith who played at an opposing club who uh, I think took mark of the year one year. At, played down at Melbourne. Okay. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I was a real AFL nut. I wanted to play for Collingwood. That, that was my dream. Um, unfortunately, Melbourne seemed a long way away and uh, I didn't think, didn't know how I was ever going to get to Melbourne. It was going to be good enough probably anyway. But when the Raiders arrived in Canberra, I suppose it gave me something to strive for. Yeah. Um, and I started playing rugby league. And I think I soon worked out I was probably better suited to that sport maybe than the AFL. But, um, yeah. When the Raiders came in, would you guys all go down to Seaford Oval? Yeah, we used to quite regularly. Um, Dad and the boys, he'd take us out. They used to have a system where you jump on a, on a bus, it was one of those double decker buses that used to fold in the middle with the. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, it was a bit of an experience to be honest. You jump on the bus and you'd get dropped off right outside the ground at Seaford. Um, I do remember I was uh, there for their first win against the Newtown Jets. Um, yeah, so that was a huge. It was like they won the grand final, to be honest. Um, and there's some other memorable games at Seaford, of course. Um, some of the other performances weren't real flash. You know, they're probably a bit similar to some of the score lines that we've seen this year yeah. <laughs> from some of the NRL teams. But, um, but we're, uh, we're, we're lucky, weren't we? Like sitting on the hill, like I was trying to tell this to my mates the other day that didn't go to footy a lot. Like for me, I used to go to Shark Park heaps, sit on the hill, Belmore, Parramatta. It was the best, best experience is sitting on the hill and watching the footy. Like I don't think the yeah. kids of today, they're all in their, these big, big stadiums with their seats. It's just not the same. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I mean, at Seaford, they used to um, 
cage the uh, the teams as they ran out. So <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Seaford, but yeah, um, I have. It opened the gate. Have you been there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could almost reach through the cage and touch the players, and I know that. Uh, opposition players used to complain about getting spat at and so on. <laughs> I wasn't one of those doing the spinning, but I mean, just to get so close to these guys that you considered superstars, you know, it was it was unheard of, I suppose. Um, you know, and physically looking at them as a, you know, I was a tall 13, 14 year old boy, and I'd be going, geez, these are, these are big men, you know, so there's something, I suppose, in that, in that inspires you when you're a young fella. For sure, mate. I remember because I used to referee back in the day and they used to get sent down there to do like Jersey Flag and SG ball games and you'd yeah, run right. out and you'd go, how the hell did Canberra ever play first grade games at this place? Like, But yeah. it would be a massive advantage because, you know, I don't think clubs would want to, for firstly, you've got to get to Canberra, so you've got to take a bus or whatever and then you've got to turn up and you've got this little small stadium that isn't state of the art in anything. So, like, you'll be straight off your, your comfort zone, everything. So, yeah, it was a massive advantage, I reckon. Yeah, not to mention the, the freezing cold in the middle. Oh, of the yeah, sorry, I missed that as well. <laughs> <laughs> the ground itself was amazing in that I think from about April through to August, there was constant mud. It was just a quagmire. The mud used to stink. Yep. Um, you get tackled in it and, you know, you'd want to have a shower straight away. It was just a... An unpleasant experience, really. Yeah, so. I can imagine. So, Alex, you know, you starting footy, especially on the the weekend scene late. What age were you when the Raiders picked you up? Uh, yeah, I played Jersey flag at, at under nineteen level, and uh, I remember I got identified there, and the Raiders made contact, and I think I signed my first contract at nineteen for about five hundred dollars. <laughs> um, I went and then played under twenty threes. But I had a, a, a lot of injuries in my younger days. Okay. Um, remember, I broke my collarbone at Jersey flag level, and it broke uh, broke a jaw and so on. So a bit of this, um, you know, this fortune, I suppose, at, at a younger age. But yeah, that was my first uh, contract at the Raiders at nineteen years of age for five hundred dollars. Yeah, when you played in those teams, who else was kind of in that that squad with you? Um, yeah, probably the, the under nineteen squad. We had Mark Bell. Um, he's probably the only one that went on and played NRL from that team. And then he won the 21s team, um, played with Dave Barnhill, Nigel Gaffey, wow. um, Brett Boyd. Um, so those sorts of guys went on and played NRL. That was a pretty fair squad at under-21 level. Mm. Um, when I first went into the um, 23s at, a, at 19 years of age, Glenn Lazarus was in that squad. I remember rooming with him on a couple of occasions and uh, um, he was probably the officer probably the biggest name that went on. Um, yeah. Mate, how did you find, because, you know, years later, you and Belliac form one of the greatest combinations in taking the Storm to all this success. But obviously he's a few years older than you, so he would have been at the back end of the, his career when you were kind of starting your own. How did you find Craig Bellamy on first impressions? Um, I just remember he was an angry captain when we were playing reserves at, at Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> So he was obviously getting towards the end of his career and playing uh, a fair amount of reserves footy. And um, but you know he he took the young fellas under under his wing and uh, very similar, I suppose, to his personality and character now. Um, no, he he was good. I think everyone had a huge amount of respect for him as a player at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, just through his toughness and his effort. 
Did you have an inkling that he would be a head coach? Um, I was probably too young to think about those sort of things back then. Mm. Um, and to be fair, you know, he went to the Bronx as an uh, as a performance strength conditioning coach with Wayne Bennett initially. Um, so I had a feeling, I suppose, he was going to move down that line. But I knew, obviously knew his football brain was also very, very good. Um, but I never saw Craig coach or wasn't involved with him as a coach other than only as a player. Yeah. Because when he was doing those roles, obviously I wasn't at those clubs. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's probably no surprise in that, you know, he's he's very, very passionate about his footy and very driven. Yeah. Alex, do you think it gave you a bit of an advantage having played the game at a, at a high level in comparison to a lot of the other strength and conditioning coaches? I think so. Um, you know, it's probably not a, an unreasonable argument to say, you know, you haven't played the game, so what would you know? Mm. Um, it's not correct in that, you know, we've got the numbers in front of us. We know what the game involves physically, but to experience and feel you know, what a game is like. But having said that, I haven't played the modern game either. And, you know, I sit back and just admire the athleticism and the toughness of our game at the moment is is phenomenal. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I've heard it in recent weeks by certain um, media commentators about, you know, the rugby league. And I think Ben Teo made mention of it being a sport takes you to a place that no other sport can physically and mentally during a game, you know, and there's going to be a period just about in every game where, every player gets to that point where they feel like they can't continue. There's not not another effort in them. Um, So I suppose experiencing that sort of thing as a player probably gives you some idea of how you need to train your players and what's expected of them. Yeah. Now, now, Alex, you know, in terms of playing first grade, you know, you played a handful of first grade in that 91 season because you guys ride – because when you're playing Reggie's, you guys ride the bench for a little while. That's how you first made your debut, right? Uh, Yes. Uh, I had a couple of run-ons off the bench. Um, yeah, it was an interesting. I mean, players used to do it. Some players used to play three games in a day, didn't they? They'd play 23, sit on the bench, reserve, get on and play first. And they go to work on Monday. Uh, and, you know, we all know what it's like. When you finish playing one game, you start to stiffen up and whatever else, and then normally you get the call, oh, you're on. <laughs> and there wasn't any warm-up or anything. <laughs> so you'd do a couple of arm circles, I suppose, and you'd run out. But, um <laughs> It was uh, it was an interesting time. Um, yeah, I mean, I only had a limited first grade career, to be honest. I was limited as a player. But, you know, I feel very fortunate to be involved with a club at the time that, you know, was was doing exceptional things, I suppose, on the field. And if you look at the history of the Raiders and uh, the number of players that have gone on to bigger and better things, um, you know, in the NRL, obviously, as coaches and in other areas, it's... Uh, it was an interesting time, yeah. Yeah, mate, in that handful of games, I went through the stats the other day. There's a site that actually puts them all up. You made three <laughs> You made three run-on starts at prop in a row, mate. Sheensy was loving you there for a little while. Yeah, um, yeah that didn't last long, unfortunately. But uh, I think Darren Fritz sort of took my spot, and he obviously went on and played State of Origin of Queensland and so on. He was just a big unit. Um, so I suppose I should have been thankful for the three games that I did start. Yeah. Um, we had a, uh, I think it was my first run-on game was against the Panthers and that was during origin time. So it was a bit like the baby Broncos, but it was the baby Raiders. And yeah, okay. uh, a number of players made their debut at Bruce and we ended up winning the game against a pretty fair Panthers team. I think who were missing a few as well. But, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, 
I suppose kudos around you know the performance from from the boys that day. Um, yeah, but mate, to be that. around that club because literally because you guys won the eighty nine grand final, you won the ninety grand final. So now to be around the boys after back to back seasons, like you guys had everyone: Meninga, Walters, Clyde, Daly, Stewart. Mate, what's it like to be in an environment with such great players? I mean, it was a little bit intimidating, to be honest. I mean, you know, I was a relatively quiet, I suppose, humble, I'd like to think, yeah. um, player. And you rock up the training and there'd be 50-odd players in the dressing rooms. And, um, you know, you'd sort of take your seat in the back somewhere. And, you know, not that the players were like that at all, but, um, you know, we used to have club training sessions every Tuesday, I think it was. So irrespective of what grade you played, we'd all train together, which was, you know, I think that was Tim Sheens' initiative and it was awesome in that you'd have, uh, you'd be doing a tackling drill or training drill with, you know, Mal Meninga or Laurie Daly or Ricky Stewart next year. So you need to, need to have, uh, lift your game a bit, I suppose, to make sure that you're, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that was some reason why the club had so much success in a lot of different grades and produced, you know, some pretty decent footballers over the years. What, 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 was, what was Sticky like? Was Did he get stuck in like real hard? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think I played a couple of games with Rick and copped a fair amount of abuse, as most players do if you weren't in the right place or weren't, weren't making the correct tackles or whatever. Um, but again, you know, you couldn't, couldn't question or doubt his desire to win and his uh, competitiveness and all that sort of stuff, which is awesome. I mean, what, what more do you want from a player? Um, you know, and he has every right in the position that he plays to be as hard as he is. And I'm sure that, you know, there are players playing at the game at the moment, probably probably with a few less Fs and Fs and Cs, but the same messages get sent out by the best players in the game now too. Yeah. Alex, what were you doing for work back then? Yeah, I uh, I went through uh, teaching okay. degree. So I uh, left school, went straight into PE. That was my dream as a boy, you know, was to play top-level sport, elite sport, and become a PE teacher. Um, mainly because back in those days, if you looked at all the staff at NRL clubs, AFL clubs, that most coaches and performance managers, which they weren't even called then, they were just called bloody strength and conditioning coaches mm. or trainers, we had teaching backgrounds. So I thought, well, maybe I need to become a teacher if that's eventually what I wanted to do. So I knew from a young age that I wanted to work in elite sport. So that was the sort of path I took. So I was pretty fortunate through my days of playing at the Raiders in that, you know, I was sitting on my bum, you know, maybe three, four, five hours a day max, you know, listening to lectures and going to shoots, yeah. whereas a lot of guys would turn up training at six o'clock at night having, uh, you know, laid bricks or, you know, poured concrete or whatever, you know, but it was just what you did back then. You did, you know, you'd leave training at eight thirty, nine o'clock, get home, have dinner, you know, and these poor guys would wake up early the next morning, go to work again and, you know, there weren't, there weren't too many complaints about it. It was just what was expected. And, um, yeah, so I, I obviously uh, started out teaching. Um, that was my sort of job, career. Yeah. What what year did you leave the Raiders? Um, yeah, 91 was my last year there. Yep. So I think it was due to salary cap issues and <laughs> they even had them back then. Um, so a lot of players had left. I think Steve Jackson and... Um, you know, Mark Bell might have left. And those sort of guys, those fringe first graders, I certainly probably wasn't, a, well, I was a very low fringe first grader, but um, yep. 
I had opportunities at uh, other NRL clubs, but again, uh, I just received uh, a permanent role as a teacher. Okay. So I didn't really want to leave Canberra. So I ended up playing a couple of years of bush footy. Yep. Out at uh, Yanko, which uh, most people probably don't know where it is. Um, where is it? In the Riverina. Okay. But I was living in Canberra and travelling up to play. Um, interesting story there is one of the local businessmen, Barry Kelly, who was a very uh, financial local electrical um, wholesaler, I think he was. But anyway, he uh, he was basically paying me out of his own pocket and he was flying myself up. And uh, a guy called Roger Kenworthy, so they wanted, when they signed me, they said, oh, you know any guys that are, you know, really good wingers outside backs? I said, oh, actually, I do. Roger was probably the quickest player at the Canberra Raiders at the time. Yep. So I said, Roger, you want to come up and play some footy? And uh, Roger and I used to fly up on a Friday in a light plane and land at Miranda Airport. Bloody superstars. <laughs> <laughs> Barry would pick us up and we'd uh, he'd host us at his house and we'd have beautiful meals and... Uh, we'd play on a Sunday and we'd fly back Monday morning. I'd fly back to go to work again. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't real keen on the light planes, to be honest. And I think a part of the way during the year, because we used to train with the team on the Saturday morning uh, at Yanko, but I'd do my own training, of course, during the week in Canberra. I'd used to train out at uh, West Belconnen. Yeah. Uh, and we'd fly back Monday, but it meant that we were away for, what, three nights. And uh, we decided that we'd change routine so we started driving up um on the saturday and training with the boys they'd change the training to the afternoon on a saturday just for us which was awesome and yeah. uh we traveled back sunday after the game so it was it become one night away <laughs> rather than three i was um yeah just about to be married and so on so that Is seemed it? to work better but barry um barry kelly gave us a car to drive too which was pretty handy pretty good of him <laughs> mate with all these luxuries i hope you're winning yeah, well, we we won the competition that year, to be honest, so that was good. Um, I was playing up front with a guy called Kerry Hemsley. Oh, yeah, nice, from Balmain. Yeah, so that was an experience in itself. He was a unique character, a uh, great guy. Um, and then the following year, um, we signed another player from Canberra, and his name was David Sharp. Okay. And David Sharp now is the head of Asada or whatever the – Oh, Okay. Sharpie and I played Jersey Fleet together and uh, they were looking for another back. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, I'll see what Sharpie's up to. I think he was playing at the Blues at the time. So the three of us used to travel up um, and play. And I uh, I actually injured my knee during that season, so I didn't actually finish the season off. But they ended up winning the competition again, I'm pretty sure, that year. So that probably went better when I wasn't playing. Okay. <laughs> so, mate, when did you actually start training, like, in terms of, taking like a role that you you kind of do now, like a strength and conditioning role with any form, whether it's an amateur or professional club, where did that all begin? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, In 1993, I finished teaching in Canberra, left and took up a role at the QRL as a development officer. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, that was sort of my path, I suppose, to where I wanted to finish. Um, my wife at the time was a Brisbane girl, so we took the opportunity to move to Brisbane and um, – it was in that role where, you know, strength conditioning sort of took on a bit more of a role in my life in that, um, you know, I was running courses and seminars and so on, um, running sessions here and there. But the QRL had a funny rule back then that you couldn't actually associate yourself with one club at any particular time. Okay. 
So you had a number of clubs in your area of responsibility, so you'd work around the different clubs and so on. You're allowed to work out. I think I was coaching a couple of junior rep teams and so on um, at the time. I remember working with Thurston and Cameron Smith at under 12s. Okay, wow. Schools development camp. I remember watching Darren Lockyer run out at under 19 level, you know, in a state carnival, you know, and being a selector for that and so on. So um, that was sort of how it began. And then I left the QRL in, um, I think it was 97, and I took on a job at the Queensland Police in their gym, and that allowed me then to work with, uh, with clubs. And I ended up taking a role as an assistant coach, strength conditioner at Brisbane West yep. with a great guy called uh, Wayne Trelevin, okay. who was a bit of a West legend. Yep. And um, that was my first uh, role, I suppose, full-time at senior level. Um, and then a bit of trivia, but long story short, I used to do up these little tip sheets for the for the players, and we uh, played Redcliffe in a, I think it was preliminary final. Redcliffe were the team that beat that year, and anyway, we yeah. ended up beating them. One of the West players had left that tip sheet behind in the dressing rooms, and someone at Redcliffe had come across it. Oh, and no. uh, they're going, geez, they sort of got hit the nail on the head in terms of what we needed to do to beat us and who their key players, you know, and whatever. And I think they did a bit of research, said, oh, who, who put that sheet together? And they found out it was me. <laughs> like a job interview, Jesus. Sorry? It was like they were scouting you, like it's a great, it's, you know, it's like literally like a job interview kind of thing. They've, they've found you. Yeah, they've, well, they've headhunted you. Next year is that they, uh, they made contact with me and um, they said, look, we, we want you to come over to Redcliffe as an assistant and performance strength conditioning guy, similar to what you're doing at Brisbane West. I'm going, oh, leave it with me. And obviously, Redcliffe were quite financial, so they were offering some big money, but. I offered the coaching job to uh, a guy called Gary Grenke. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Gronk might have then been offered the job at Canberra as an assistant to Mao. Okay. Anyway, they ring me soon after and said, look, um, hang on, we've got something else for you. Um, Gary Grenke's not taken on the coaching role. Would you consider being head coach? I'm going, oh, geez, I mean, it's not really what I want to do. I'm, I've never sort of set out saying I want to be a coach and I thought about it and the money and all that and I thought, why not? So I took on the head coaching role at Redcliffe. The head, co- the head coaching role. Yeah. Wow. So I think that was in about '99. Um, so that sort of came out of the blue. But um, the year after that, that was when the Raiders approached me, and I went down there um, as a strength conditioning performance guy. The Raiders under Mel Meninga. So that was my first NRL job. Wow. Back Mate. In about two thousand. It is great because this is probably why you're kind of renowned as the best in the business because, you know, not only did you play, then you kind of went through the coaching route. I think a lot of, especially people in the SNC game, they don't really understand the sport enough, I feel. So they don't actually know what's going on on the field. For you, you know what's going on on the field tactically and then you also know what the players are going through both physically and mentally. So I think, you know, we talked about you having a massive advantage in that area. It's definitely, I think kind of the standout point for yourself yeah oh thanks for the thanks for the rap mate i don't know i think there's some great performance managers out there at the moment to be fair um who are really leading the way but you're right and funnily enough when i was watching games of rugby league in my performance roles i used to remind myself at times that i should have been watching the game on that basis and not as a coach um you know because you can probably look at the games a little differently yeah in, in that way but 
having said that, I know when I first arrived at Melbourne with Craig, there was uh, one assistant coach in Dean Lance. There was myself and, you know, I said to Craig a number of times, mate, if you want me to. And I used to watch some video of the games back then and give them some feedback, you know, because we had limited staff. Um, you know, obviously as time went on, the requirement for me to do that decreased. And Craig probably thought, you don't know what you're talking about anyway. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. But um, I remember, you know, in a few meetings actually presenting stuff to players, of, you know, what the previous game and so on. Craig would give me a specific role. It wasn't a lot, but... As time went on, obviously the performance role become more encompassing and the more assistant coaches arrived, so I didn't need to do that anymore. Yeah. But, you know, that was back in 2003 and we're at the level now where most clubs have probably got two to three times the staff that they had back then. Yeah. But you're very lucky because you're, you're literally a pioneer because you were there because literally the year before Super League is when rugby league became professional. So that's usually – that's kind of when you actually stepped into – the actual industry as well. Did you ever think, like, I know that you always wanted to be part of sports and all, all that sort of stuff, but did you ever think it was ever going to be as big as, big as it is now? Um, nah, probably not. I mean, the salaries and so on, for example, and the um, expenditure and the whatever in sport is just phenomenal. Um, and, you know, back in the Super League days, people probably don't remember, but, the game was on its knees. Mm. Um, you know, there was real concerns about whether the game could survive. That was when I was working at the QRL during those um, early mid-90s. And I remember I remember just saying to a lot of people, I'm going, this is a great, great sport and it will survive. I just knew that it had to, it would. And, uh, you know, we've seen that in recent times too. I mean, of all the codes in Australia, you know, perhaps we're a little biased, but... <clears throat> I think rugby league is the one still invested at the moment. And, yeah, you know, for sure. Credit to the sport, mm. the game itself, that it is in that, in that position. But obviously, we know financially, um, which is another point in itself, you know, we very nearly didn't survive because of some of the decisions that were made at the highest levels. But, you know, as going back to the great man, Peter Volandis. Yeah, um, St. Pete. You know, we do owe, owe him a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the sport's been very kind to myself. And I know, getting off the top of you a little bit, but Peter said the same thing in terms of, you know, rugby league when he was a boy growing up as a Greek immigrant, you know, probably um, he, he didn't think he may have survived. He wasn't a rugby league player because he used to get beaten up. But I think because he played rugby league, it gave <laughs> him a bit of uh, leeway. So, yeah. you know, um, you know, we all have a passion for that sport for, for different reasons, but similar reasons, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, Alex, obviously science is a huge part of the strength and conditioning game as well, and it's, it's evolved so much over this kind of 30-year period. What's Looking back now on those first few years when you stepped into the role at Canberra, you know, is there things that you did back then that you would never do today? Um, yeah, I, you know, thinking of the programs and so on. There's still elements of the programs that were, were similar. Um, it's just now that there's so much more technology and uh, staff and accountability. Yeah. You know, a player virtually cannot do anything, you know, on the training field without us having numbers on what he's done or what he hasn't. Back then it was sort of a bit of a guessing game. Um, you sort of, I suppose, had to have a feel for what you thought would work, what wouldn't. Um yeah, and even in terms of injuries and surgeries and so on, I suppose we're a lot more advanced now with um, you know MRIs and 
all the medical technology that we have, yeah. um, you know, diets and so on have advanced. So, um, you know, training methods, of course, have advanced and we can see in the athletes that are getting produced now. Um, so, like all sports, I think the games have evolved, the sport and um, performance areas have evolved with technologies and time. Yeah. Did, did you have a mentor and all in terms of the SNC space? Um. That's a good question, to be honest. I know that um, obviously when I was uh, playing, there was a guy called Sean McRae who was mm. at SNC at the Raiders, who was yep. an ex-school teacher in Kelvin Giles. Um, you know, they were they were pretty good operators, I suppose, at the time. I think Sean was the first strength conditioning coach in it, full-time in NRL and all that sort of stuff. Okay. And yeah, yeah. So I suppose um, I wouldn't say they were mentors, but, you know, they were sort of guys that I'm going, well, this is what I wanted to do one day. Um, and, yeah, just over time, just listening to different people in different sports, um, you know, and I'm fortunate to have a lot of good friends that work in industry now. Yeah. Um, you know, generally most of them based in around the AFL because of my time down in Melbourne. Yep. But, um, yeah, it, it is a good network. Um, you know, I noticed you had Donnie on your podcast yeah. not so long ago and Donnie's a champion and, he and I have uh, come against one another many times that we have a huge respect for each other and uh, we always have a good laugh. He's a funny little bastard, yeah. as we know. That's what he was saying as well. You know, obviously the Manly versus Melbourne, that was the biggest rivalry during both your times at those yeah. clubs. But he said that he loved it because he obviously knew the same thing. He thinks you're a great bloke as well. But, you know, when you, you need you need a rival to make yourself better. And I think that's it extended past just the players extended to Desi and Billy extended to you and Donnie. And I think that was the great part of the rivalry that you were all making each other better. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, when the battle of Brookvale occurred, I sort of looked for the, the smallest manly guy, manly staff person I could find. I thought, well, if it comes to the staff, I'm going to, I'm going to pick Donnie. <laughs> but, um, but having having said that, um, I think we all have an element of that in us, and you know, I, I do read the news a little bit and find out, you know, who's doing great and which performance managers are shooting their mouths off, which happens quite regularly, especially in pre-seasons. And I generally like to bite my tongue and not say too much, but you know, every little thing gives you a little a little itch and a little competitiveness to say we want to get out there and you know, the boys want to get out there and beat this team, but it, it becomes personal for us as well in that. I think if you're not in, if you're not competitive in your working industry, you shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, you know, we as staff obviously experience the highs and the lows of the players, probably not at the same level. But um, you know, I'm, I'm not a good loser, and I'd imagine Donnie isn't either. Nah, and, not uh, when you're used to winning. Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, Alex, who got you? Because you arrived at Melbourne a year before Belliac, right? Who, who no, got, no, I arrived same time. Arrived. Okay, was he? So he did he headhunt you to to be his his second man? Yes, um, Craig had said to me uh, a couple of years earlier. He said, "Look, if I ever get a role as an NRL coach, I want you to be my uh, strength finishing performance guy." I said, "Okay," and I knew that Craig wouldn't say that sort of thing without following through. Yep. And at the time, I was working in the Super League at um, Salford. Okay. So I went over there for England, a year. yeah, okay. To the Raiders. And uh, I remember reading the local news and so on. And I read that Craig had off, been offered the job at the Tigers and he knocked it back. I'm going, oh, come on, mate. Why didn't you take it? <laughs> I want to come home. <laughs> I want a job back in Australia. 
because um, we'd been relegated in the Super League. So uh, it was interesting times back there. You know, people were losing their full-time livelihood. I wasn't sure whether I was going to be kept on and so on. And then there become talk of, you know, Craig being offered the, the Melbourne job. And uh, I got a phone call late one night. Craig probably couldn't work out the time difference. <laughs> and uh, and it was Craig and he said, mate, uh, looks like I'm going to take the role at the Storm. You know, would you be interested? And I said, he goes, um, have a think about it and bring it back tomorrow. I said, Craig, I don't need to think about it, mate. I'll be, I'll come. Yeah. So uh, that's how that, that all occurred, yeah. Alex, you know, in terms of, you know, Melbourne's winning culture, you know, all the stuff that we see and we hear of, you know, obviously the, the success that Bellyache and all his staff has had down at the Storm. When you guys arrived, Melbourne had already won a competition, but was the mm-hmm. culture that you guys also had, was that already pre-existing or was that something that went to another level when Craig and you guys arrived? Uh, that's a really good question, TK, and um, I don't think the cult. well, there were elements of it that were still there. But I think what sometimes happens is when teams have success, some people that arrive when the success has occurred or just before it probably think that it's just going to continue to happen. Mm. And there's some people that create success and some that just inherit it by arriving at the right time. And I think a lot of the players that were there, other than the couple, probably thought it was going to continue. And there was, and I think most people at Melbourne knew that was the case. The culture there wasn't a great working culture. And there was a bit of um, a bit of a philosophy that, you know, it's just going to happen for us. And I know I had a very strong edict from Craig when I arrived that I had to make the training sessions excruciating and tough. And, you know, we wanted to see how players stood out and stood up to it. Um, yep. You know, fortunately, we had some players like Robbie Kearns and Steve Kearney at the time yep. who were older players and who took it on board and desperately wanted to be successful again. But there's also a core group of players that weren't prepared to go with us. And, um, you know, Craig knew that. And, you know, they didn't survive at the club for very long. Yeah. And that's where the younger players, you know, we all know who they are, um, Smiths and Slaters and <clears throat> Dallas Johnsons, those sort of guys, Ryan Hoffmans, they came through and they didn't know any different, yeah. fortunately. They just thought, well, this is normal. It was a tough program, tough regime. But what happened over time was that we probably didn't have to be as harsh and as um, tough on the players because they were driving it themselves. Yep. Isn't it? Uh, that's just what they knew. That's what they expected. So we had some really good senior guys like Kearns and Kearney. Yeah. And some younger guys coming through who thought that was just normal. And um, it was an amazing club to be part of, I suppose, and see how it evolved during those years. Um. I know when we got there in 2003, we made the finals, but to be fair, I think we just we were just tokens in the finals. We, we weren't really a chance of winning competitions. It was only probably three, as I say to a lot of people, three to four years later. We made a grand final in 2006 where we, we should, oh, I thought we should have won, won that. that year, yeah. but, um, it took us three years to actually, I suppose, get to a level where we were serious contenders. Mm. Alex, you know these famous army camps that you guys initiate players with? Whose idea was that? Um, it would have been Craig's. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not sure, but I think it comes down from his uh, 
comes through from his Broncos days with Wayne Bennett. I'm pretty sure they've been doing those sort of camps themselves. Yeah. Um, did you review it before they did it? Oh yeah, we we sat down and we we had a fair idea of what was happening and where they you know they uh, it was run by uh, a group of ex um, special operations of Victorian police guys okay. and really good good characters and really good people. Um, the players probably didn't see the good side of them, but they were gen- and pretty sure the guy Craig Walsh was still involved with the club. So those those cans have been running for t- nearly twenty years, uh, which is a credit to to himself and the programs that they run. Um, you know, so they're highly credentialed sort of people in their own area. Um, but, yeah, we obviously had regular meetings before the camp, so we had a fair idea of what was going on. But, obviously, we weren't to notify players too much. We, they were often told to bring golf clubs and so on along. <laughs> Mate, Alex. <laughs> it wasn't golf. Yeah. Uh, Belly, you know, Alex, Belly was noted to hide behind bushes and all sorts of weird things during training. Did you also participate in this hiding behind bushes and scaring players? <laughs> I was too big to hide behind the bushes. Craig probably get away <laughs> with it, but um, yeah, I was generally holding a stopwatch or you know blowing a whistle. So, but Craig would uh, park himself in various locations to see, and generally it was safe. We we're doing a a loop. It would be at the top of the hill behind a tree somewhere, so that his. Um, his desire was to see if any players, you know, gave up basically on that effort, on that run, or decided they were going to walk. We had a little rule. It was a big rule that you, no matter how slow you ran, you'd never walk. Mm. Um, you know, no, no matter how steep the hill was, you'd never walk up a hill either. So if uh, players were caught walking up a hill, well, then generally there'd be a penalty for the whole group. Yeah. So that didn't usually go down too well. But Craig, you know, saw those training sessions as an opportunity, I suppose, to see how players would handle the tough times in a game. Did it, ever and, get, did it ever get to a point, Alex, that, you know, because of the culture that you guys drove, that you wouldn't have to even supervise these guys, that you know they wouldn't cut corners? You know, you just talked about them having to run up these hills. Was there, was there ever a point where you just had you could just walk away for an hour and know that they would do it? Oh, yeah, I think... Um, that was sort of going on my point earlier in that as time went on at Melbourne, training and the standards got driven more and more by the players and less and less by the staff. And when you've got that sort of environment, that's when it becomes such an effective uh, winning culture. And, um, you know, that was a credit to the guys involved. I mean, you know, Cameron Smith, and he'd probably openly admit it, but he wasn't a great leader, a natural leader in his early days. It was manufactured and he had to work really hard at it. Mm as did a number of the other leaders in the group. But, you know, towards the end of my time at Melbourne, he was a great leader. So he developed, as did the other players. Um, so it's something that doesn't come naturally, um, you know, to be harsh and to make people accountable and to front people and say, that's not good enough. You know, you've got to be better. Mm. Um, it's an awkward situation, but, you know, it's what's necessary, it's what's required. Yeah. Did Melbourne do it better than any of the other environments that you'd been in? Um, yeah, I would think so. Um, I'm probably a little biased. I had 11 years there. So, um, yeah, the key was, you know, with the leaders there, as we know, was not only their own performances on the field, but, you know, they made other players in the group better players. Mm. 
you know, and that's a secret as a leader. If you're earning the big dollars, is not just how well you play, but it's your effect on the rest of the group. Yep. Not just in games, but in training. And I think there are some players in the game at the moment who are earning huge money that are not having the same influence on the group. Yeah, totally agree. Let alone, you know, in their own form. Alex, did you get nervous for grand finals? Uh, on staff? You mean? Yeah, on like, because I can imagine like, yeah. even though the players have to play the game, you guys have been you've been preparing this team since what mid October to peak for a day in October, and you get one yeah. shot at it. And this yeah. is your livelihood too, because if you don't win premierships, you don't go up that that rank as one of the best mm-hmm. strength and conditions. You need these premierships to kind of show kind of some sort of you know you know what I mean. Like it's it's yeah. something that kind of validates your role in in what you do. So do you get yeah, nervous from that that's group? Really. I suppose personal way of looking at it, which I don't, that's not my first priority. I think it's seeing, wanting to see the players succeed because of the work they've put in, mm. you know, and being part of that gives, gives great enjoyment. I, you know, I love seeing players performing at the highest level and absolutely getting the best out of themselves. But, you know, yeah, getting to a grand final, I mean, even things like pre game warm ups and, you know, uh, making sure that starts and finishes at the right time so the players are ready to sit down, listen to the coach talk before they ran out onto the field. You know, I suppose the, the tension and the stress around that is even higher. Um, you know, even little things like, you know, grand finals, you can't warm up on the field. So you've got to do indoor warm ups and, you know, warm ups are warm up, but still, you know, that's part of part of your role. You want to make sure that it, it goes well. Yeah. Um, hey. You obviously don't want any. Sorry, mate. How do you program, you know, grand final week? I'm sure everyone's on a little bit of edge and you really want to get to that game day. Like, you don't want to keep everyone on cotton wool, but how do you program that last week of training? Yeah, well, you know, the work's, the work's been done, so they're not going to get any fitter or any stronger. Um, obviously, the less work you do that week, probably the better, but um, the thing with grand final weeks is the extra curricular sort of the media, yeah, like yeah. Media and, you know, grand final breakfasts and whatever else. So as a performance manager, I suppose you've got to sit down and look at the program and, you know, there's some, you've got to look at, you know, I know when Channel 9 used to want players coming to the footy show on a on a Thursday night or whatever and we'd sort of, you know, we'd understand we'd have a role or responsibility, but, you know, I think there were times when they wanted every player in the team to turn up and we'd say, well, hang on, can we not maybe send three or four rather than 17 guys? So you've got to look at those things because every little thing they do during the week in any week is going to have an effect on performance. Yep. Um, but one thing I used to remind, try to remind myself, and I think I'm sure players and coaches do the same in a grand final week, is to enjoy it. Yep. And sometimes you can get caught up in the, the pressure and the stress. <laughs> but, you know, it's a unique opportunity that, you know, 14 other teams aren't involved with. And it's important to have really good memories. I think... When you lose a grand final, you probably try to forget those. Yep. And when you win one, you hold on to them. But you know, it is a it's an awesome week. Um, you know, something that I've I've missed since what was it, two thousand and thirteen or whatever it was. That last of Melbourne. Oh, well, I had one at, at Brisbane to be fair too, which we lost. So I've probably forgotten a little bit about that one. Yeah, mate. But, um, you know how the players, you know, when you win a premiership, they can go on a three or four day bender. How does how does a coach celebrate winning a premiership? Um, I think there's elements of the 
the week where, you know, staff and players turn up. And there's other elements of the week where you say, boys, um, well, you don't say anything. You just go out the back door. <laughs> so I think you're <laughs> smart in that, you know, you're not a player. And I think there are times there, you know, I've been out many, many different times with teams and while they don't say, you probably know that they don't really necessarily want you around during those periods when things are getting a little bit, um, interesting, yeah. But you know, in this day and age, that probably doesn't occur as much as it used to either. But I suppose having a knack for knowing when you should be there and when you shouldn't, type scenario. But I know, that, um, typically at Melbourne on a Monday, obviously we we're allowed to call them Mad Mondays back then. I don't think they do them anymore. Can't say so. But um, it was a fancy dress. And <laughs> I've, I've got some wonderful photos. <laughs> I can imagine, including the including the coach. Really. Outfit, so um, you know, they were good times. We used to have a, a good laugh and um, enjoy each other's company, yeah, yeah. Alex, you know, when the, the whole salary cap scandal hit, had you already left the club? No, um, I'd stayed on. Uh, having said that, uh, Brian Wardron, who was the CEO, of course, at Melbourne at the time, took mm. on a job at the Rebels, and um, he had under me and said, Look, would you want to come to the Rebels? So I think I was just starting out. Yeah, in the um, Super 16 competition. And I got offered, you know, an extremely good deal. But one thing I am, TK is on lawyer. And, yep. uh, you know, I decided that I wouldn't take that offer. Um, to be fair, I'm not a, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but I'm not a huge rugby fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm i an AFL fan and I'm a, a rugby league fan, but I, to be honest, can't sit and watch too much rugby union. Yeah. Um, but I could have, I was greedy, gone for the money and whatever. Um, but I decided to stay on and I think, you know, the people that stayed on, there were obviously some players that had to move on for different reasons and some staff that moved on. But the ones that stayed were rewarded. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get it the next year after the salary cap scandal in 2012. We were beaten in the preliminary final by the Warriors, yeah. which is probably a very, very um, tough, hurtful sort of loss. Um, but having said that, it was the year after that um, the Storm beat the Bulldogs, which obviously was, uh, um, of all the grand final wins, I think probably the sweetest for most people. Yeah. You know, during that, that year with the scandal, was it hard to keep the boys motivated? Yeah. Uh, I I say, I say to a lot of people, I see that as being the best season of football that I've been involved with from a football team, mm. purely for the fact that, there were weeks where I didn't know how our players turned up and played to the level they did. To be fair, I think on the staff, I, I was struggling at different times. But I think the secret was that we all going through those periods, obviously, you know, players and the head coach more so than even myself. But every time you go into training, there might have been, you know, three or four players that were a little down or staff that were down, but the rest of the group brought them up. And I think the next day it might have been someone else's turn to be down. And But as collectively as a group, it was such a credit to all those involved that, you know, we had to make training a lot more fun. So the um, yeah. I think the boys just say to me, mate, what are you doing here? We don't need you. <laughs> but we still turned up and we, you know, we, they still did their weights and they still did some, some conditioning. And But most of the training was trying to, trying to be fun-based. Yeah. But, you know, People may not be aware, but if you looked at the wins and losses that year, I think the team finishes fourth at the end of the home and away season. Yeah, they do. Unbelievable, you know. Um, Who broke the news to you, like, originally that something was about to hit? Yeah, it was uh, 
an afternoon. <clears throat> we were training out at Princess Park, Carlton, because we'd moved from our normal location at Amy Park because that was being redeveloped. Yep. So we had a new training base at Princess Park, Carlton. And uh, I remember we were training that afternoon and um, the coach wasn't on the field, which is highly unusual. And I remember thinking to myself, Craig's not here. What? That's not something's going on. You know, something's wrong here. Something's not right. And I remember as soon as training had finished, we all got called into the, the meeting room, which is this dark, dingy room under one of the stadiums yeah. at Princess Park. And um, I think I, walk, I walked in, I remember looking at Craig and he obviously had tears, well, he had tears streaming down his face and I thought, geez, this isn't good. But obviously the hierarchy at the club knew what was going on one or two days earlier, mm. but I don't. Pretty sure none of the players and majority of staff had no idea. Oh, it was just a shock when Craig um, announced at the time what was happening and the premiership's getting ripped off us and whatever else. Wow. Yeah, so. yeah, was it hard? Like, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, the players took it well, motivating them. You know, they came to, you did all those fun things at training, things like that. But for yourself personally, was it hard sometimes to go into work? Yeah, I was, as we all were, disappointed um, because I had no direct involvement with the salary cap yeah. side of things. And, you know, the majority of the team were young guys that arrived at Melbourne having not played in NRL. And, you know, I was a little frustrated with the system, I suppose, in that, you know, players were getting paid money that they were worth, yep. but not worth when they first got to the club. Yep. So there was no reward, I suppose, for the development that occurred of these players. Um, you know, I know there was talk back then of, you know, maybe there should be some dispensation or whatever, but at the end of the day, the club, the people involved broke the rules, knowingly broke the rules, and I suppose what happened deserved to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it at all, but there was a frustration from my perspective for those reasons, um, you know, because I, I don't, don't want to be labelled a cheat either or, you know, being involved, knowingly involved with it, which I wasn't. Um, but again, we're all part of it, so we copped it on the chin and moved on. But it did, I think it did take a while. I don't know, um, I think this year was the uh, 10th anniversary, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty, pretty much, yeah. 2010, 11, yeah, it was. Yeah, um, you know, and I know it's still, it's still there for uh, those involved in terms of, you know, I suppose the memories and maybe the pain has gone away to a certain extent, but it's still there for those that were most closely involved. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Now, Alex, you know, we've talked about a winning culture. Now, can we just move on to your time with the New Zealand Warriors? Because that would have been totally different because, you know, the Warriors hadn't won a premiership. They've been noted for not being a hardworking club and a lot of different elements that make it very hard to walk into and try to change or even have some sort of in, impact on a culture. That first kind of few weeks at the Warriors, how hard was it to try, like, firstly, kind of what was the culture like when you originally showed up? And then obviously you had a massive impact because you guys make the finals that first year. So how hard was it to actually impact what had already been instilled in that culture at the Warriors? Um, yeah, I think the perception a lot of people have of the Warriors isn't, isn't correct by a long way. Mm. Um you know, the club and the culture, though, the players that I had there when I, that were working with me were very willing 
lovely, respectful guys. Um, you know, very proud New Zealanders, most of the ones that were uh, Kiwi. Um, but I had a similar edict, I suppose, to what I when I um, first arrived in Melbourne with Steve Kearney. And he knew that, you know, we needed to change. The athletes that were there, we needed to, you know, test them mentally. Um, there were some issues around, you know, during tough times in games and what used to occur or didn't. Um, so I set out, obviously, to do the job and to try to create the type of player, help create the type of player that Steve wanted. Mm. But having said that, the players were very willing to adopt. Um, you know, Roger Tuivasa-Sheck and Blake Green, those sorts of guys, um, I can't speak highly enough of their their willingness to work, yep. their professionalism, their desire to win and all those sorts of things. They're as good as any other players I've ever worked with. So I don't know. I can't – still haven't been able to put a finger on why the club's performed the way it has over the years. Um, my second year at the Warriors, I thought we were definitely going to make finals considering we made the finals the previous year, but we actually regressed went backwards that year. So, you know, it's a bit of a frustration. Um, you know, and obviously the club's identified that cannot afford to lose the best talent to uh, other NRL clubs in New Zealand. Yeah. The best talent's got to play for the Warriors. and All the best ones won't necessarily play there, but it's making sure that you get a fair percentage of the best players playing yeah. at the Warriors. Alex, what are the, you know, when we're, when I'm growing up, I grew up around a lot of Polynesian kids and, you know, these guys were double my size and, you know, obviously they have natural strength and abilities and things like that. In terms of their athletic performance, both in the gym and then obviously out there doing sprints and all that sort of thing. How do they rate kind of in that sort of regard? Yeah, that's a great question, TK. And we have a, a lot of the Polynesians playing in our game and it makes the game what it is. Um, they're obviously very, very gifted in the gym in terms of strength and power. Mm. Um, you can get a, a, a white player, you know, 18, 19 years of age who can lift weights. I mean, remember Ryan Hoffman, you know, you had to work three to four years to put on, you know, the five or six kilos that he did. Yeah. It was a very, very slow process where you see Polynesian boys put on weight very quickly and we all know that, but generally can put on muscle very quickly as well. So their genetics, as we know, is very different in that regard and the area that some of them, most of them probably struggle with is that repeat effort um, running ability on the field. They're, you know, dynamic on their first or second effort, but the ability to repeat, probably not as good. Yeah. Um, How do you fix that? Yeah, it's it's trainable. Um, you know, there are a couple of players who I were with at Melbourne in the early days, a guy called Sikamanu. Yep. Big second rower. Back rower. Yep. And, you know, Adam Blair. Ruben Wickie's another example. I worked with him in my early days at the Raiders, you know, and he developed a very good capacity to repeat effort. Um, you know, so it's trainable. It's like, like any type of um, physical characteristic. It's trainable. Um, some players it comes easier than others, but it's achievable. So, you know, they just got to continue to work. And, you know, similar to when Ryan Hoffman was in the gym, you know, one year to the next, there's an improvement there and then the following year and so on. And similar aerobically, I think, you know, Ruben had an extensive career of over 300 games and, you know, his aerobic capacity and ability to repeat effort by the end of his career is probably as good as any. Yeah. I don't think it was that when he was when he first started out. Um, Sigamano was a, a very dynamic player as well, but by the end of his career, he was able to play you know big minutes in the back row. Um, so you know, there's some examples there. I think 
in terms of their physical characteristics. And every every athlete, every rugby league player has got different characteristics, different strengths and weaknesses. Mm. It's just the ability just to work and keep plugging away with it. Um, I My philosophy is, and this is I don't know, hopefully don't get me into trouble, but I know with the Polynesian boys, um, you know, they don't fear contact. Yeah. You know, they all love contact. Um, they have, I suppose, a fear of that time in a game, which I spoke about right at the beginning, that dark place. The fatigue, yeah. But yeah, when they get to that position there, I don't know that some of them responded as well as what they could um, for whatever reason. I think we all have that in us that when you get to that point, you just want to stop. I can't do any more. But it's those players that have the ability to say, you know, I'm not stopping. I'm, I've got another effort. I've got another three efforts in me if I need it. Um, and it's teaching them, I suppose, that they do have that effort in them. Yeah. Um, I often, you know, use the analogy with a lot of athletes is that when players are working at what they think is 100% of their capacity, every single player has probably got two, three, four, some maybe 10 or 15% in the tank that they don't know they've got. Mm. And they've got to find that. Um, younger players, you know, for example, the school I'm working at now, they're probably, they've got 20% there. They think it's 100% they're working at, but they're working at 80. Yeah. It's the ability to find that. How do you encourage someone to try and dig that deep, but? Um, again, it's the old saying, um, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yep. Um, some players have got it naturally. I know a guy called Michael Crocker, and we all know Croc, um, ex-Melbourne, yeah. whatever, Roosters. You know, he he was one guy that I actually saw enjoy that pain, being in that situation physically in a funny way. <laughs> and most of us don't enjoy being in that situation. So, you know, Croc would turn up for training and would enjoy pushing himself to those levels. Somehow got some satisfaction out of it. Um, is it is it your best trainer in your time? Um, <clears throat> Croc, Croc had a bit of a few injuries in his time at Melbourne. He was the best cross training athlete I've ever worked with on the rower and the bike. And yeah, who's the biggest? Just, who's the biggest freak that you've seen? Someone that just blows you away in terms of their athletic ability. Uh, yeah, that's it. Really, I don't like singling too many guys out, but. In terms of natural talent, there's you can't really go past someone like a Greg Inglis. Okay. Was he just a joy to train? Like, because he is a phenom. It's so, like, you have a look at him. He's, what, six foot four. He's 110 kilos naturally. He can run, what, 10.5, 100 metres. Like, he is an athlete, that guy. Yeah, he was, <laughs> as they always say, as a performance person, don't judge yourself on your best athletes. Judge yourself on your worst. So... You know, it was easy work and get results with Greg, although, um, you know, there were times in his younger days where he wasn't as willing to work as some. <laughs> but um, one thing that stood out with Greg, I remember um, obviously we're doing a lot of swimming and recovery sessions and so on, and Greg jumps into the pool and I think I said, you know, let's swim, you know, a lap. And, you know, swimming a lap for a lot of the team was was very difficult. You know, someone like a Sika Manu would, hold the lane ropes after five metres, take a few breaths and go for another four and do, do his lap in about 10 five-metre swims. Yeah. But um, Greg just had this beautiful long, and I'm not a swimming, oh, I've got a swimming certificate, so I know a little bit about it, but he had this beautiful long swimming stroke. You know, it was, it was effortless and 
you know, when they talk about Greg, they said he could have run the 400 metres for Australia at the Olympic Games. Or watching him swim, I'm thinking, you've obviously, you know, swam at the highest levels. And I, he got out of the pool and I said, mate, um, where did you learn to swim? Hey, you know, have you been part of swimming squads? You've been coached? He said, nah, let's just swim in the rivers back home. Wow. <laughs> so what? I said, oh, you've never ever had any swim coaching? He goes, nah, just, just cool. naturally yeah. that's how I swim. And I thought to myself there and then, I mean, um, just what a talent, what a gifted athlete he is that he could, you know, swim so effortlessly. And, and then, you know, we'd play those usual cricket games leading into games and yeah, some of the stuff he used to do on the cricket field with a tennis ball and, you know, in the field and whatever. It was amazing. So um, he's one of those freaks, yeah. Yeah. All right, Alex, let's wrap things up with my personality question. Now, you've got five invites to a private dinner party. The only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would you like to invite to dinner? Oh, gee, five. I don't know if I could keep it to five. I'll, I'll start with Muhammad Ali. Yeah, nice. I just think he's, you know, speaks for himself. Um, he'd be the first one. Jacinda Ahern, okay. the New Zealand Prime Minister. I have a huge respect. I did meet her in the dressing rooms. and Did you? That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was pretty pretty wrapped to quickly chat to her, but impressive woman. Um, who else? Steve Waugh. Okay. I'm big cricketer big, then. Yeah. Steve Waugh fan. Oh, we like that cricket. I wouldn't know if I was a cricketer or not, but Steve Waugh. So um, I'd probably invite, uh, did you say friends aren't allowed or are allowed? Oh, if you want. If it's someone that's passed away, I'll allow it. But if it's a, oh. someone that's alive, they can't come. Okay. All right. Well. Who was it going to be, your brother? I can't mention the mad butcher then in, in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Yeah, he can come. He's pretty funny. <laughs> we can have an special guest. Yeah. He's a champion, one of the most considerate, generous guys I've ever met, to be honest. So, um, But also a, a real funny character. Does he actually have a butcher shop? Like, why do they call him the butcher? Yeah, he had a sit. Well, he, was, he started the mad butchery um, many years ago from one to okay. numerous stores, but I don't believe he's got a financial interest in it although he's still involved with some advertising stuff and whatever mm. but uh generally nice guy really nice guy um so we've got Ali we've got the Mad Butcher um we've got Jacinta Ern, um Sophia Vergara yep and I wouldn't invite her for the conversation but for other reasons <laughs> and uh I, I was thinking I'll probably get in trouble for my wife for inviting her along, but so I probably need to invite Kim Kardashian because my wife looks a bit like her. So. Oh wow, lucky you, mate! <laughs> lucky you! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow! All so, right, mate. Uh, so what are we down? To? We're down. To that's five. that's five, mate. You've got you've got a good crew there, mate. Kim hasn't been invited yet, so she's free. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, there as well. All yours, mate. <laughs> um, and then. I'd love to have Alf there, but we can't break the rule of being a friend. Alfie Langer, I reckon he has an unbelievable ability to <laughs> to bring all sorts of people together, mainly through his damn book, and to have a great night. Yeah. Um, I'd have Paul Hogan. Yeah, nice. That's a good pick. Yeah, we need a bit, of humor, a bit of humor there. If I'm there, I don't have a great sense of humor, so we need someone. Excellent pick, mate. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast, mate. Some great stories there and some great insights into, into the SNC world. And I know... Mate, Donnie Singer's podcast is one of the most downloaded ones ever, and I know this one's going to back really? it up. Yeah, it's going to back it up. The, the boys and He's girls out legend. there love it. Bit of personality. Donnie's, 
with a bit well, of strength. He's downloaded and hundreds of those on his own, hasn't he? Oh, mate, thousands. You should have seen the bloke. He wraps himself. You should say some of the text. If I, if I reveal some of the text messages Donnie Singe sends me, wrapping himself, he'll be very uh, embarrassed, man. Classic. Yeah. But Alex, all the best, mate. Hopefully see you back in the NRL soon. Looking forward to seeing you. Obviously, continue your, your Queensland, unfortunately, with us in New South right. Welshman. But, yeah, mate, you do a great job at, at all levels, mate. So congratulations on a great career and look forward to, to seeing a little bit more. Oh, thanks very much, TK. Enjoyed it, mate. And that, guys, was Alex Corvo. Today's episode was brought to you by Manscaped. Pick up a gift for Dad or yourself for Father's Day and save a whopping 20% off and free delivery by using the coupon code TK at delivery. It's called Manscaped. You'll find it now at manscaped.com. And like I said, use the code TK. You will save a whopping 20% off. Next week, guys, on the show, we have former Manly and Newcastle player Jamie Bura. He's a legend of a bloke. He grew up at Black in the Blacktown area, just like myself. So we've got plenty in common. It was a great yarn. And I really, you know, I really think you're going to really, really enjoy it. So look out for Jamie Bura on the show next Monday. If you like today's episode, please share it with your family and friends. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter at Talking with TK. You'll find me at Instagram at Tristan Nell. Old school email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Whether it's a yarn about the footy or some guest requests for shows coming up, definitely get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. All right, guys. Yeah, reviews as well. I really appreciate anyone leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts particularly, but you can also do that on Facebook. But uh, yeah, it's... It's a way for me to continue to grow the show. So whether you've bought the book, continue to listen to the show or leave a review. Really, really appreciate it. And I really hope you're all staying safe out there at this point. But yeah, definitely do get in touch. But for now, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK. 